Welcome. I am Greta Aurora. I often talk about feminine power and how weak men can feel in the face of this power. I believe the culture feminists like to call patriarchy is simply man's defense against nature and woman's power. However, even this culture is designed to favor and protect women first and foremost. The term for this phenomenon is gynocentrism. No author has written about this subject more eloquently than Peter Wright, whom I've had the honor to speak to recently. I was originally hoping to record an interview with him, but unfortunately he has to conceal his identity due to privacy and professional concerns. This just goes to show what an oppressive patriarchy we're living in, doesn't it? I'm going to be presenting Peter's answers to my questions shortly, but first I'd like to give a brief overview of his work. What is gynocentrism? As Peter explains in his book, Gynocentrism from Feudalism to the Modern Disney Princess, gynocentrism, a centuries-old term, refers to the principle of female-centeredness or female dominance in various social or interpersonal contexts. The term has recently enjoyed a resurgence, serving again as a descriptor of the expanding yet centuries-old obsession with the rights, status and the power of women. Peter traces the origins of cultural gynocentrism back to medieval Europe. Eleanor of Aquitaine was the wife of French King Louis VII and then English King Henry II. Eleanor and her daughter Marie de Champagne together devised the concept of courtly love by transforming the military notion of chivalry into a notion of servicing ladies. Peter writes, Courtly love was enacted by minstrels, playwrights and troubadours, and especially via hired romance writers like Hetény and de Troyes, who wrote stories to illustrate its principles. Under the continuing guidance of Marie, it was elaborated into a code of conduct by Andreas Capellanus in his famous tract titled About Love, in English, The Art of Courtly Love. Peter does differentiate between benign gynocentric acts and more problematic examples of gynocentric culture. I asked him whether gynocentrism could be considered an inherent mammalian and human trait. He answered, in mammals, and specifically in human relationships, there exists an interplay of gynocentric and androcentric acts. But the overall relationship between males and females is not necessarily gynocentric, as some would insist. The wombs of females are a precious resource for the perpetuation of a species. And that reality elicits some measure of protective gynocentrism from males. Conversely, the offspring produced by women's wombs would be in extremely high danger of perishing without the protective civilization and infrastructure created mostly by men. Thus, we can conclude that some measure of androcentrism is also necessary. 
So what we have is not gynocentric relationships as necessitated by evolution, but rather a reciprocal relationship between males and females designed to bring the next generation of children to maturity. With that in mind, it makes little sense to characterize human relationships as simply gynocentric, meaning woman-centered. And it makes much better sense to characterize them as relationships of reciprocity. I also asked him whether it was natural for men to fight each other for dominance and mating opportunities, since we see this behavior in other mammalian species. Fighting to gain access to females is the behavior of dimorphic tournament species, which is contrasted with more monomorphic, pair-bonding species. According to biologists like Robert Sapolsky, humans show traits of both dimorphic tournament species and monomorphic pair-bonding ones, indicating that we have a more flexible potential to move between these behaviors than other mammals. A more recent paper by Steve Stewart-Williams explores whether humans are highly dimorphic, polygynous animals like peacocks, or relatively monomorphic, pair-bonding animals like robins. And he concludes that we are closer to the latter than the former. I've included the links to Williams's paper and to a short video of Sapolsky explaining the differences between these types of species in the description below. But to summarize it briefly, in tournament species, the males are much larger than the females, and the strongest males win the opportunity to mate with females by fighting the weaker males. Therefore, dimorphic species tend to be polygynous. The most dominant males get to mate with multiple females, and many males don't get to mate at all. Pair-bonding species, on the other hand, tend to be monogamous. Us humans seem to sit somewhere in between these two types of species. Here's more from Peter on this topic. With such wide variability in human potential, our cultural customs can be set up to encourage male behaviors into just one side of that potential. Say, for example, the competitive tournament style. If, for example, we are steeped in the cultural mythology of gynocentrism, a convention that has arisen over recent centuries, we might assume humans are singularly a tournament species, with males fighting for access to females, despite the more complex evidence against this viewpoint. As is often the case, this demonstrates that a cultural myth creates biases in our perspective and limits our potential. Isolated gynocentric tendencies are part of our biological heritage, as are isolated androcentric tendencies. What I don't buy is the belief that humans are somehow a gynocentric species, or that, overall, relationships between men and women are biologically designed to be gynocentric. This totalizing proposition that gynocentrism should somehow dictate and swallow all aspects of male-female interaction is both extreme and unfortunately popular. 
This viewpoint is based on a mythology arising out of European culture in which gynocentric customs have become amplified through the deployment of what are called supernormal sign stimuli, a term used in ethology circles to show how the behavior of mammals can be made to overrun their evolutionary purpose via the deployment of sophisticated sign stimuli and propaganda. Peter co-wrote an article on this complex topic with Paul Elam, titled Chasing the Dragon, which is available in print and on YouTube. Peter and I share a deep passion for ancient mythology. I was curious how he would interpret one story from Greek mythology in particular, the Trojan War. Is the story of men willing to go to battle to retrieve Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in the world, a reflection of the human psyche, or merely a form of scripture meant to condition people to see the world a certain way, or anything in between? The short answer is yes, myths are correct in stating that beauty is an immensely powerful motivator. So I agree with that truth in the Helen mythology. Helen prayed to Aphrodite, who represents beauty, sensuality, sexuality and love, and who is said to be more powerful than even the so-called patriarchal gods. She is able to weaken even the limbs of the mighty Zeus himself. Mythologies like those in the Iliad or the Bhagavad Gita contain profound truths about human tendencies, but they can be equally misleading regarding human behavior. Fictional material from the classical era, such as Helen of Troy, a Greek myth, or Lysistrata, a Greek play, when used as proof of gynocentric behavior or gynocentric culture, is too meager in terms of evidence. As the old saying goes, one swallow does not make summer. Further, in terms of facts about human behavior, myths can be about as trustworthy as would be the movie Planet of the Apes to future researchers studying the history of primates or My Little Pony for future researchers studying the evolution of horses. I also asked Peter whether he believed complete equality between the sexes was possible to achieve, despite our biological differences. Obvious reproductive and hormonal differences aside, the average man has approximately double the upper body strength of the average woman. His response? Those differences between men and women are very real and are not going away. Equality may be possible in the numerous areas in which men and women are alike, either psychologically or physically. In the area of overlap, underlined by Jordan Peterson, who stated that men and women are more the same than they are different. However, complete equality is a ridiculous thing to want or to attempt to mandate socially. That's why we hear the popular slogan among men's advocates that we support equality of opportunity, but not equality of outcome. Does Peter think men and women must become more like each other in order to be fully equal? 
Or can we have equal opportunities and fair legislation while also celebrating our differences? This is something that each modern individual or couple must decide for themselves. Modern society has graced us with the option of following traditional gender roles or creative modern roles or perhaps something in between. In his book, The Myth of Male Power, Warren Farrell advocates a partial move away from traditional gendered roles that ensured cooperation and survival. He referred to those roles as stage one survival roles and proposed the move toward roles which are more shared, such as sharing child rearing and money earning. This proposition, of course, infuriates advocates of traditional roles. I wouldn't personally go so far as advocating the transition to Farrell's stage two roles, but I think it's worth noting that we all do have such options available now. And finally, these are Peter's thoughts on whether there's still a place for traditional masculinity and femininity in today's culture. Yes, absolutely, he says. There's a place for traditional femininity and masculinity, especially for those who are attracted to these ways of being. I look at women in traditional cultures who can be powerfully alluring and simultaneously demure by way of complementing men's strength, agency and sexuality. And to my eyes, it is an art, a beautiful dance that has stood the test of time. Conversely, I also see the art and beauty of men and women who embrace more of their human potential. And if they can make that work in a relationship, I say power to them. Again, it all comes back to individual choices rather than who is right or wrong. At least that's how I tend to view it. I hope you enjoyed this discussion of gynocentrism and gender roles. If so, please click the like button and subscribe to my channel. And let me know your thoughts in the comments below. Also, please consider supporting my work on Patreon in return for some exclusive content.